this that? Satoshi Nakamoto, Casey wrote him on I'ma make history, baby. Got long descriptions, my baby. You think you vibing, but you ain't describing. That sound like a mystery, baby. It ain't a mystery, dog. I win the risk and reward. Ordinal pixels is dropping. The big one is popping. Satoshi's galore. Sub 10k, sub 100k. You ain't got none of them. It's gonna be a long day. It's gonna be a long night. Might be a long flight. If I see SB, if it didn't sound sight, I'ma put it on Toshi. I'ma put it on Naka. They just put it on Testnet. We gon' put it on Block. Yeah, we doing it proper. Shout out to you. Shout out to everyone that's grabbing Ordinals on their computer. Road to a million. Uh, yeah. Ordinals. 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 Shout out Baby Spot. Shout out Hootie. Tap the Wizards. Ordinal Faces. Pies Bones. Archie Monkey Danny. Frank CK. D Gods. I see you. Billy. What's up? Ordinal Shards. Bitcoin Shrooms. Pixel Pepe's. It's too many to Good morning, Bitcoiners. That's right. You're here at the Ordinal Show. I'm Trevor.BTC, managing partner at Stacks Ventures and CEO at Ninja Alerts. I'm going to be here with my co-host, Yanni. He's running a little bit late. He's a builder and expert, host of the Builders Podcast. But of course, I'm here with the king of NFT, Sparta himself, Leonidas, the man whose name is synonymous with NFT history, Twitter Spaces host, and NFT history wiki creator. And we're here to talk about Bitcoin Ordinals with some of the smartest people in the space. We host this show Monday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern and Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Eastern to all the time zones and spread the good word about this new movement of art, culture, media, trading tools, and new kinds of digital assets being built on Bitcoin L1. Ordinals what? For those of you just tuning in for the first time, ordinals and inscriptions are a new kind of on-chain, non-fungible token first created on Bitcoin. Ordinal is just a piece of Bitcoin, a Satoshi that's had a file inscribed to it. Literally, the media is uploaded and stored on the Bitcoin blockchain. These ordinals are fractions of Bitcoins that work just like Bitcoins, they don't require any smart contracts like you need on Ethereum. They're simple, elegant, and powerful. But more important than this technology is the cultural change that we're seeing on Bitcoin. Developers are pouring in and innovation is accelerating. And that's what we're here to talk about. So let me introduce our guests. Of course, we've got Adam McBride here from Emblem Vault. Adam, good to see you again. We've got Danny from OnChain Monkeys. We've got Billy Resty from Ordinal Shards. We've got Domo, the guy who created the coolest marketplace dashboard on dune we've got patrick stanley from 1btc ragnar from trajan and the ordinals conference we've got post capone here and as well we've got peter todd a special guest here bitcoin core developer We're super excited to talk to him peter so thank you for coming and so i'm excited to be here i'm glad that you're all here with me and don't forget to follow the bitcoin ordinal show on twitter at the ordinal show subscribe to our Substack newsletter link in bio we post weekly recaps in the newsletter and rsvp links for future shows so you never miss what happens in the ordinal space. And with that, we're joined by Peter Todd, who's an OG Bitcoin developer here, one of the smartest people in the space. And I'm excited to talk to him about Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin Core and full RBF, which I think is an interesting topic. And of course, ordinal. So Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Peter, would you like to just give a brief introduction to yourself for those people that don't know you? Well, so 
I've been involved in Bitcoin since, you know, depending on how you define it, like 2012, 2013. I've done a bit of stuff for Bitcoin Core, although I haven't actually made any code contributions for a few years now. I'm known for, among other things, check lock time verify and full RBF. And also I started open timestamps, which is your very boring timestamping service to timestamp all your things. Awesome, Peter. So could you just tell us like what what is Bitcoin Core for those people who don't know? Like what is is it a is it a group? Is it an open source project? Is it, you know, and what is the position of the developers who contribute to it in the space? Like give us a little more background. Well, I, I mean, I think if you're going to talk about that, it's worthwhile to go talk about, you know, how did Bitcoin kind of start and what did it look like in those really early days? And you know, if you go back far enough, obviously, you get Satoshi Nakamoto, who, you know, back in, hopefully I don't embarrass myself with getting the dates wrong, but back in like 2009, released what at the time was called just Bitcoin. And, you know, that was piece of source code put up on the time source storage and so on. And, you know, the interesting thing about Bitcoin is how, obviously, you know, on 2009, the fact of the matter is Satoshi Nakamoto had kind of enough influence that Satoshi called the shots. And you see this in like how early changes the protocol were made. You know, Satoshi released some code and for the most part, people just ran it. And there were, you know, some forks that Satoshi did in the very early days where people didn't even know they existed because, you know, it wasn't announced. And over time, that's evolved into Bitcoin Core as well as a few other offshoots of that same code base where, the process is, you know, much more community-driven. Because, uh, I mean, think of it this way. Like, the definition of the Bitcoin protocol is ultimately what the community as a whole decides to run. So these days, you have Bitcoin Core, which is just a project with, you know, a GitHub repo and a bunch of people working on it. And for the most part, people go and download Bitcoin Core, and that's how they implement the Bitcoin protocol. But what's interesting about Bitcoin Core is, you know, that's not your only choice. You can just easily download Bitcoin Knots, which implements pretty much the same thing, hopefully with no differences. Or you can download even my own, like, full RBF peering patch, which is Bitcoin Core plus, like, another 100 lines of code to do full RBF. I mean, it, you know, but the, the neat thing about this is kind of what the Bitcoin protocol is. is sort of ill-defined. It's more, you know, what is, what is other people running? And I think that's one of the very interesting things, but working on Bitcoin and the protocol and the stuff surrounding it and so on, you know, it's not easy to put into words what exactly it is other than it's a piece of software you can go and download. Very cool. And so is Bitcoin Core, is there like a leader to it? Like, how is it actually run? Well, you, you know, like it's mostly in terms of consensus because, I mean, you know, on one hand, there are people who have the access rights to within the you know realm of GitHub push code to the Bitcoin core GitHub, and then also there's a slightly different group of people who have the right PGP keys to you know meet the sort of Bitcoin core authorized signers list. But the way things get run in practice is of course very decentralized and very consensus driven because the fact is you know. Bitcoin Core doesn't do automatic updates, right? So our job, you know, as the Bitcoin Core developers and other people around that community is to figure out, well, how do we come to consensus over what code base people should run? 
you know, and like I personally don't have any of those access rights. I'd never have had any of those access rights, but I'm still very influential in Bitcoin core in the Bitcoin protocol and, you know, worldwide precisely because people like you invite me to go give talks and, you know, talk to other people, what, what, what Bitcoin core or Bitcoin implementation you should run. You know, if Bitcoin core did something stupid, like, you know, maybe go seize money from people. People like me would say, yeah, yeah, obviously you shouldn't run that piece of software. That's just an idiotic idea. Go run this other piece of software. And, you know, that's why in turn Bitcoin core is this very consensus driven process where, people try very hard to make sure that whatever code actually gets into Bitcoin Core has a lot of consensus around it, because otherwise people will just stop using Bitcoin Core. Yeah, well said. And Peter, so how do people, like, how would a developer who's never contributed or who maybe they're coming from a different space and they're learning Bitcoin development, but maybe they're a really talented developer, how would someone contribute to Bitcoin Core? Well, you know, Bitcoin Core is unique in that the most influential contributions you can do are often not anything to do with code. And, you know, a good example is, you know, my own full RBF thing, which is not a protocol change. It doesn't change what blocks are valid, but it changes essentially how overall miners will go build blocks, you know, and I'm speaking at a very high level here. And how have I pushed full RBF forward? Not by writing a pile of code. For the most part, other people have written that code, but by advocating for that idea. You know, and th this is so unique to Bitcoin development in general. I mean, obviously, not just Bitcoin Core, but the nature of Bitcoin development and other consensus systems, which is if you can convince other people your ideas are good, that is a form of development and it's completely valid. You know, you don't necessarily have to write any code to be very successful at pushing ideas forward. And often the code that you do write is very simple. One example being my own check locks on verify opcode, which got adopted to the Bitcoin protocol in the sense that basically everyone using Bitcoin was running it, you know, and I think roughly 2015, 2016, if I remember my dates. And, you know, that the implementation of check lock time verify is like a dozen lines of code. It's, it's trivial, but convincing everyone, this is a good idea that took like two years of work, you know, on, and you know, two years on and off. And that political process of saying, Hey, Here's why this is a good idea. You know, this is worth doing. Here's what it, you know, implements, et cetera, et cetera. That was all the hard work. And that, you know, that's just so different from other projects where it's really like, how good are you at coding? You know, I personally don't like writing in C++ because C++ is a scary language to go work in. So I avoid actually doing it. But I'm quite happy to write in English, if you will, by writing up papers and saying, hey, you know, this is something that, you know, Bitcoin should be doing. That, that's fascinating. Let's go to Wab. He has his hand raised. Wab, jump in. Yeah, I've just got a question. You know, as someone who's from Ethereum, mostly on EVM blockchains, I've always struggled to really understand, like, the, the variables or things that you could change and contribute towards Bitcoin. Like, what specifically are the main contributions you think that, like, the average person can make? I think, like, apart from, like, changing, you know, how many uh, megabytes are, like, passed every, or not passed, validated every, like, block or, or transaction or whatnot, right? Like, what can you change? Well, I, I mean, I, I think the answer to this, you know, the honest answer is as Bitcoin progresses, there's less and less that you can realistically change. And, you know, maybe an analogy I would give is, like, 
talking about what you can change in Bitcoin is sort of like talking about what you can change in like bridge building standards. You know, like if you're going to build a concrete bridge and it's a hundred feet long and, you know, it's above a small creek, like we're, we've pretty much figured out how to go do that. And you can advocate that the standard should be a little different, but you should expect that over time as engineering just improves, the amount of change in these standards will diminish. And like what would take for Bitcoin to really change in big ways is probably, you know, new, new contributions to like computer science, you know, new ways of thinking about how consensus algorithms can work. I think it's much more valuable as a developer to instead have the mindset of what can I build on top of this protocol? And I think the Lightning Protocol is an excellent example of this because Lightning needed very few actual changes to the Bitcoin protocol to work. You know, your minimum viable product was basically having, you know, check locks on verify and check sequence verify. And, you know, once those opcodes were there, it was possible. SegWit made it a lot cleaner. But, you know, that was done years ago. Now you get all this innovation in Lightning, and it has very little to do with Bitcoin Core directly. Also, because of the nature of the Lightning Protocol, it's okay if you and I are doing something totally different because, you know, Lightning is not a consensus system. Lightning is built on top of a consensus system. So if you and I have different ideas about how Lightning should work, that's okay. We can be separate, you know? Like my own projects, like Open Timestamps as an example, they've, you know, most of the stuff I focused on has been things built on top of Bitcoin because that gives you all this freedom to decide how you want to do things without having to go through all the political effort of trying to get the whole world to change at once. Awesome, Bobby. You want to jump back in and then Billy? Yeah, just on, on the topic of L1 BTC specifically, are there any things on the horizon that will be like major changes? So for example, with Ethereum, obviously there was sharding and you know, proof, of, proof of stake. So is there anything on the horizon that's in like contention or, or being debated right now that's going to be major for L1 BTC? Honestly, I mean, compared to your example of proof of stake, I, you know, Bitcoin could easily go its entire existence without ch- making a change that big. And I think that's that's fine. Like, that would be a perfectly good outcome in the same way as, you know, the Internet is based on TCP IP. And other than IPv6, which was kind of created in like the early 90s, there really hasn't been a major shift in how the Internet works. You know, all these upper layers change so much. But the basic lower layer of, well, how do you get packets from point A to point B? That's been pretty much the same for, you know, the past, what, yeah, past like 30 years. And that's good. You want things to be stable. Billy. Yeah, there there used to be this meme where it's like, hey, I just found out about Bitcoin and here's ways we can improve it or fix it. I can't remember the exact meme, but... You know, Bitcoin, the invention of Bitcoin was so massive and it solved a problem that, you know, computer scientists and people have been trying to solve for decades. It's hard to sometimes wrap your head around just like how massive it is. Right. And Vitalik was obsessed with Bitcoin. He wanted to he wanted to tinker. He wanted to to play around and he realized it was a, you know, close to final product in many ways kind of like Peter's been dropping knowledge on us. So, yeah, I would I I feel very strongly like you know, people you're not going to see forks and updates roll out every 3 months. Like that's just not 
you know, it's, it's pretty much there. So I think a lot of the attention and building is going to be on layer two because layer one is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. You know, just, just seeing the kind of difficulty adjustment as computer technology, like when ASICs dropped is just incredibly amazing to me, just how, how much foresight Satoshi had with Moore's law and just kind of understanding kind of where we're going in the future. So essentially we just need this, the fundamental layer one that everyone like a open source opt in system and just not fuck with it. Right. And then you can build things on top of that, but you need that layer. That can't be your kind of test net where you're just kind of experimenting like, Hey, let's try this. Let's try that. Because yeah, to me, it's, it's pretty close to a final product and it has all the utility in the world. I mean, money unlocks a lot of freedoms in the world. So it, it, it always, it drives me crazy when people are like, you know, it's a boring pet rock or something. That's just kind of asinine to me. Don't fuck with it is good advice for a lot of things. Awesome. Albert, you want to jump in? You got a question? Yeah, I actually had a question. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think the, I think everyone knows intuitively that that technology evolves over time. So, you know, this is a question for everyone here. How long do you think we have with Bitcoin until there's a a better Bitcoin? How many years? I I think it is plausible. It's years. It's already happened. (laughs) Ethereum. Like, like, and I don't want to say that for sure, but, you know, if, if you transported a thousand years into the future and Bitcoin was still there in basically the same form, I mean, other than like, you know, one thing you'd have to do is do a hard fork to go fix the fact that the end time field is 32 bits. So it won't be exactly the same, but if it's basically the same thing in a thousand years, I wouldn't be that surprised because, you know, sometimes like sometimes we've reached the pinnacle of technology. I mean, we seem to have done that as an example with, you know, commercial jet aircraft like we haven't gotten them to fly you know any faster than a nearly mach 1 for the past like 50 years and that seems to be the pinnacle of like what's possible you know you don't do better than that i mean you know your toilets would have looked exactly the same to someone 50 years ago as they do now because we perfected that technology you know there's tons of technology like this well said peter post yeah, somebody somebody threw it in there that, you know, like, oh, well, Ethereum is already the better Bitcoin. You know, Peter's right. The fundamental sort of base layer that is the architecture for the system being simple is truly an ideal outcome. And having something that isn't ever changing ultimately allows the larger ecosystem that surrounds it a lot more freedom to do other things. The reason we can iterate and improve in the internet so much is that the, the basic fundamental delivery mechanism, the, the lower level architecture of the internet is resilient and does not. So there's been a lot of conversation in the inscription space or the ordinal space, particularly, I know like we've talked about it here on this, this series quite a few times. There's all these client extensions, all these ways that you can run additional stuff in the Bitcoin software like your node can run all these other things that extend the the utility extend the utility of the software right and allow you to do all these other things and i really think i i genuinely believe that people are going to be quite shocked to see how much can be done and peter i'd i'd love to have your input or feedback on the on the thought process here 
But I think that even very simple things like BIP322 offer an action space where developers can do like quite extraordinary things in like an arbitrary communications layer that is that is secured by the same cryptographic model as the base layer, but ultimately achieves like a lot of the the product development tracks that we've seen that are popular in other markets. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, with my work on like things like open timestamps and proof marshal, you know, I, I found that using very simple primitives that you can implement on Bitcoin for for a wide class of problems, I mean, basically the sky's the limit. Like, you know, if you want to go and, you know, I mean, the, the RGB protocol is a good example of this approach. Whereas, you know, if you want to go and trade pretty much anything you want with like any rules you want, it's just a matter of implementing the right software. And that does not need to touch the Bitcoin blockchain at all, other than in extremely limited ways, like just providing a mechanism to prevent a double spend. So, you know, it, it's, Really, like, how imaginative can you be is the question. Yeah, I, I would encourage people, like, if, if you have this, like, very strong conviction that, oh, well, we already solved all this. We solved it in Ethereum. One, sit back and watch, because I think the next two years are really going to shock you. And two, consider the the increased attack surface in the base layer for, for a more complex system like Ethereum, and consider the like bandwidth requirements, right? Like there's throughput, there's computation occurring in the base layer that really only affects like a small number of people. So if you can have this very, very, like Peter just said, like simple set of primitives that allow you to securely perform other more complex things in arbitrary layers, right? Like you you don't, when I, when, when I say like a different layer, it's not even necessarily like, oh, well, a roll up or an L2, but completely arbitrarily defined layers. Like perhaps it's a, just a, a strictly Alice speaks to Bob sort of peer to peer communication layer. It can really be anything. I think, I think people are going to be really surprised. Peter, I'd be really interested. Have you had any thoughts? One, have you, have you really looked at the construction of the envelope that's being used for inscriptions? Do you have any thoughts? Have you had any thoughts about other applications for that enveloping method, like alternate meta protocols? Do you have any opinions on where that goes? Well, I mean, I, I think the challenge you get trying to reuse like what inscriptions is doing is, you know, I think for the sort of art side of inscriptions, the fact it costs so much money works fine. You know, it, it becomes part of like why they can be collectible and so on. But, you know, if I was to go and talk about a different type of protocol, like, you know, a good example is, I mean, maybe I just want to go and trade soybean futures or something, and I just want a good accounting system for this. That that cost of it is just friction everywhere, where, you know, in that example, something more like the RGB approach, you know, slash proof marshal approach makes far more sense because you're just using Bitcoin as a very specific thing and then using other mechanisms to actually transfer transaction data. So, you know, the, the truth is, like, I think ins- inscriptions for an art project is fine, but I just don't see that approach getting used that much elsewhere. We recently saw, have you seen Rollkit? Are you tuned into this at all? Well, sorry, say the name again. Rollkit, like roll-ups, but Rollkit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like, I mean, you know, there's all these, like, other roll-up protocols that people would like to use Bitcoin as publication layer for. Yeah, Rollkit's basically saying like, oh, okay, we can use 
we can use this same envelope and we can use it as like a blob space, you know, to store this data, yeah. right? It, it, it offers up a lot of other points of criticism, like what, you know, that the, there's, it, you, you inherit a lot of trustfulness concerns, things like that. But I think it's going to be interesting to watch how I, I'm, I'm also low key sort of punting into a conversation that will occur later in the space with Domo. But I, I am, I think that there is some application for the, well, the same technique. In, in I, terms I, of I mean, I, I think the thing is like client side validation approaches seem to work better than, you know, so much of this roll up stuff anyway. So, you know, as that approach gets more developed, I don't think, you know, I, I think the trade-offs work out that you're much better off with a system where like, maybe we put it is like roll ups have some of the issues lightning has with like minor censorship and so on. And, you know, you're better off building systems that don't have these issues in the first place and that you can pick and choose exactly like what your censorship trade-offs and stuff are. Because if you get, you know, everything under the sun, trying to go and integrate into Bitcoin in a time-sensitive way like rollups often are, I think you're going to get all kinds of weird failure modes. And, you know, it's just not good engineering. All right. So on that note, I don't, I don't want to derail the space, but on that note, there's a lot of questions specifically towards the trade-offs and censorship that I would have for you on single use seals. And maybe this is the time, maybe this isn't, but there's, there's a lot of conversation I'd love to have on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, like maybe for the viewers, just to describe what we're talking about when you say single use seal is this is sort of a mathematical abstraction I came up with. And like the idea is, you know, by analogy to the single use seals you would use on something like say a shipping container. So, you know, if you have a pile of goods and you, lock it all up in New York City and you want to get it to London on a ship, well, a phys- you know, a thing you can actually do physically is you get these little one-time use seals and they're all uniquely numbered and you tie it up on the handle of your shipping container. And once it gets to the other side, provided the number matches and you trust the manufacturer, the design of it and so on, you know that whatever's inside that container has got to be the same thing as what was put in there you know, in New York City. Well, the cryptography analogy to this is what if you had, again, a uniquely numbered thing that had this magical property where you could seal it over another piece of data and you could only seal it once. Kind of like a hash function, but with the thing where you get to pick what the data is after the fact. Now, if you had that, you would have a way to prevent a double spend. And as it turns out, that is sufficient to implement basically anything that needs anti-double spend resistance because it's this very simple primitive that does the double spend prevention. Of course, it's impossible to implement a single-use seal with just math because math math itself is stateless. But Bitcoin happens to be able to go do this because the transaction output is a uniquely identifiable thing. You know, transaction IDs are you are globally unique. You'll never make another transaction ID twice. Which incidentally, this Bitcoin protocol didn't used to have this, you know, didn't used to have this property, but we fixed that. <laughs> but now that we fixed that, you can define a seal by saying this particular transaction output has to be spent in this particular way. And you just go put the hash digest of your data in the transaction when you spend it. And now you can go build up protocols depending on this. So that's all well and good. And as it turns out, miners censoring single-use seals is very difficult because you can build protocols where it's not apparent what where the seals actually are. Like, they're just outputs. 
you know, when they get spent, they get spent in things that look like transactions. There's no way to go tell without prior knowledge, you know, what's, what's actually happening. Now, you do have a censorship risk in other protocols that you build on top of single-use seals, such as, like, say you want to amortize many, many different seals over one transaction output. Well, you can build sort of second blockchain layers where a seal seals over this other blockchain where you then define even more seals in it. And under those protocols, you know, some, the, per, the people doing the aggregation, they're the ones who can stop you from making use of your seal. Of course, you can make trade-offs, like say have, you know, an N of M, like say two out of three system and so on. So, you know, you can decide how you want to deal with that trade-off, you know. And one good example is like if you're a big exchange and you're trading thousands of things, you know, every uh, second, you can just go run the aggregation process yourself. And then, you know, you're trusting yourself not to censor yourself. And I'm pretty sure you can trust yourself to do that. So, you know, it's not like, it's not magic, it does give you control over what trade-offs you want to make. Thanks so much, Peter, for sharing that. Peter, I want to talk about full RBF. Could you could you explain yes. uh, what is full bar, full RBF? And then I want to go into a little bit the the lens. You know, it kind of created some division and controversy in the Bitcoin community, and I'd love to talk about that as well within the perspective of Ornals. But first, could you just give us a, a explanation of what full RBF is? What problem does it solve? and kind of the, the idea behind it and how it got included and where it is. Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll start with explaining like transaction replacement, which is, so, you know, as you may know, before a Bitcoin transaction gets into a block, it winds up hanging around mempools of different Bitcoin nodes. And, you know, the mempool is just, so for a Bitcoin node, it's just a set of transactions it knows about that thinks that it thinks could get into a block in the future, but hasn't actually, you know, gotten into a block yet. And like the purpose of the mempool is actually really simple. It's just you need some way of getting transactions to miners. And if you didn't have mempool functionality in Bitcoin nodes, well, I mean, how would you get a transaction to miners? Like you're not going like, to create a website where you to you know submit them or something. That would be rather centralized. So you want you know that to be part of the peer-to-peer network. So then the next question is, while transactions sitting around mempools unconfirmed, would it be good to be able to replace the transaction? And the answer is certainly yes. You know, there are many cases where you want to replace an unconfirmed transaction with a different unconfirmed transaction. You know, one of the simplest reasons being, well, you went and sent a transaction, then changed your mind and wanted to undo it. Or, you know, maybe you sent it to the wrong person. You also might have sent it with a fee that was too low. Because after all, getting transactions into blocks is a bidding process. You know, you are bidding with your transaction fees to tell miners, hey, please go put in my transaction first, you know, ignore that other guy. And in cases where, you know, there's a lot of bidding, it's absolutely the case that it could take, you know, weeks, months, I mean, even essentially forever for a transaction to get into a block because it just doesn't pay a high enough fee to be worthwhile. You know, if you want to broadcast a transaction with no fee at all, well, why should a miner ever go put into a block? You, you know, you shouldn't expect it to ever get in. So, you know, you've got this feed bidding mechanism. And then finally, with multi-party protocols, one, one issue you have is, like, if you and I are collectively creating a transaction, so we have, in, you know, we both submit inputs to the same transaction, well, 
if I go and double spend my input with a low fee transaction, you really want something to get done. Because remember, you know, you don't have visibility into mempools around the network. You know, that's just not feasible in a decentralized system. There's no central, you know, central place where all unconfirmed transactions go. So you want miners to go and either mine my transaction or if our collective transaction was higher fee, you want them to go mine the higher fee one so that your protocol finishes. You know, coin joins are a great example of this. I mean, Wasabi coin joins, you know, they might have 500 different people authoring a single transaction. And if one of them double spends, you know, their input, that makes, you know, that's a conflict. And you really want the transaction with 500 people contributing to replace the transaction with like one person contributing. You don't want, you know, you don't want things to get held up for something to happen, which could take days. So replace by fee fixes this by saying, well, why don't we just go replace it one transaction with another if other transaction pays more money? You know, and that matches what you'd expect miners to do. I mean, obviously, if someone gives you a higher bid, certainly you would take that higher bid. So that just makes sense. But for historical reasons, that's not what got implemented in Bitcoin initially. If you go back far enough, Satoshi basically implemented this. But Satoshi did a kind of messed up way of doing it where you had a sequence number and you, like, you have the higher sequence number. And long story short is Satoshi's implementation, you could just spam the mempool with literally billions of replacements, and there was no financial incentive involved. So replace by fee, that was the obvious way to fix it by just saying, you know, do the one with a higher fee and make them pay more money. But when it got implemented, people were relying on the fact that it looked kind of hard to replace a transaction because initially, like if you didn't, you know, initially when you didn't have this functionality, you could send a transaction. There's a reasonable chance it would get mined if, you know, no one was actively trying to double spend. Of course, that doesn't really work in practice for so many reasons, which is why, you know, everyone tells you, like, do not accept unconfirmed transactions. So replace by fee just says, well, screw this. You know, realistically, people can't rely on unconfirmed transactions anyway. And it's much better to fix the problem with coin joins, which, you know, like by, you know, dual funded lightning channels and so on. So that's how we got to where we are today but because of the politics Replaced by fee, full replace by fee isn't enabled by default. So, you know, what like my, my message to like Bitcoin users and miners is: look, this is a matter of trade-offs. Very few people accept unconfirmed transactions because you know if you do that, you just get ripped off eventually because there's so many ways to replace them. It's far better to make Bitcoin work better for coin joins, you know, Lightning channels, etc. And that's you know that's a trade-off people should be making. Awesome, Peter. And so basically, replace by fee is kind of similar to those who use Ethereum. You can essentially add a higher fee if your transaction gets stuck. I've done this many times in bidding wars for NFT mints and things like this. And it's it's kind of functionally yep. similar, right? Except the big difference with Bitcoin is that... I, 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 I mean, I mean, frankly, you know, Ethereum and so many other things already has replaced by fee. They have full replaced by fee and that you can always do this. You know, the only reason... Bitcoin didn't evolve this way is just, you know, historical accident. Well said. And so you said that the the argument against it and the politics against it was mainly that there's a simpler way to do it. Or could you touch in some of the hesitations or resistance to full RBF, which seems like you said it's it's used by so many other blockchains like Ethereum? Yeah, well, I mean, so, you know, 
the, the political reason why this didn't happen is there's always been a small number of people claiming that you could accept unconfirmed transactions without much risk, you know, and of course, a lot of the people doing this are people claiming to offer transaction acceptance services where you pay money and their proprietary algorithm will tell you whether or not you should accept the transaction. And it's notable how these services keep disappearing because they don't work. But, you know, I think because of like the big blocker stuff and the BSV stuff, you know, BSV has always kind of had this idea of, well, you know, unconfirmed stuff safe. You just accept it. That's why, you know, BSV is better than lightning because you just get your money instantly. And, you know, it's just it's just a broken technology that doesn't actually work. You know, a good example of this is in Canada, there was an ATM provider who got ripped off of like $300,000 by repeated zero comp double spends because they were accepting this stuff and their solution for, you know, quote unquote risk management just didn't work. People could easily double spend things by just sending another transaction with higher fee. And, you know, they got ripped off and, in their case, they got lucky because they had cameras and the police got involved and eventually tracked down who was doing it. But, you know, I've personally talked to other ATM providers who've lost, you know, five figures, like 50000 you know, $70,000. In that case, they didn't catch the guys and they just lost their money. And that was that. Like, you know, this is why it's so rare to find Bitcoin ATMs and similar services that, that will give you your thing the moment you send the money because it just is not secure. You know, this is why we have Lightning. Well said. And so it seems like we have like a lot of evidence for this being a good thing. And it seems like, you know, that, of course, there's people who have a direct in incentive to, you know, protect the status quo if they have a business that runs one of these services that you mentioned. But for the other developers, you know, why do you think that they dismiss that evidence of, of this problem? Well, you know, I think within Bitcoin Core, like, first of all, I, I you know, I, I should stress full RBF did get added to Bitcoin Core recently as an option. And the option is default off. But, you know, if you open your Bitcoin.com file and add mempool full RBF equals one, you turn it on. And that's that. It's a very easy thing to add. Or is mining with full RBF enabled? So if you send a full RBF replacement, you know, there's a chance that it will get mined by Luxor block. And that's that's fairly reliable. So, you know, this is implemented on the network, but it certainly would be a lot easier if more miners implemented it. And I think, you know, what it comes down to is like people are just allergic to this kind of trolling and bullshit politics that's kind of come out of the BSV camp. And, you know, people don't want to get involved more in this stuff. And the people who are for unconfirmed transactions tend to be very militant about it. You know, they're I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like a cult like thing. I mean, they believe in their thing. And they're really annoying people to go deal with. So as much as other Bitcoin devs will go say, well, you know, obviously I'm not for this and obviously they're unsafe and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll set the default to on, even though, frankly, that should have been done like 10 years ago. But, you know, that is what it is. Could you could you go a little bit a little bit deeper on that in terms of like, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to know if there's a connection here between you know, ordinals, specifically inscriptions. I noticed that, and maybe it's just anecdotal or my confirmation bias, but a lot of the devs who maybe said, oh, this is like garbage and we should, you know, make blocks smaller and Bitcoin shouldn't be used for inscriptions. Is there a connection between those people who are in the zero conf, you know, anti full RBF camp and the people who are anti inscriptions? I, I don't think you can make a clear connection there. And, you know, I'll point out as an example, Luke Jr., who I think everyone knows does not like ordinals, 
his Bitcoin Knots fork of Bitcoin Core, that's had full RBF enabled by default for years now. So, you know, that, I mean, that, that's how he's gone. Yet at the same time, I mean, Luxor, who is mining full RBF, they're also the ones who are supporting the ordinals, you know. So right there, you have two completely different takes on this and in completely different ways. Like, I just don't think those things are really connected to one another. I, I would certainly say that for, like, deep technical reasons, you know, ordinals are helped a bit by my full RBF peering patch of Bitcoin Core. And the technical reason there is that it doesn't censor ordinals, so it provides one more way of ordinal transactions to get to miners that is independent of any censorship people could try to do with Bitcoin Core. But the fact is, I mean, it's so difficult to censor transactions anyway. I think that benefit's kind of theoretical. You know, I love if, you know, everyone listening to this program went to my GitHub and downloaded my, you know, full RBF peering patch. But frankly, you don't need to. It, it's not going to make ordinals any better or worse at this point. You know, but please do it anyway. <laughs> and and Peter, what is your take on ordinals? What do you think about it? Are you for it, against it, neutral? I'd say I'm pretty agnostic. I mean, I think as a as an art thing, the inscription stuff makes sense with how it's been done. But you know, that's a very narrow use case. You know, it's it's a thing that makes sense if you're into that particular brand of art. Using it for other purposes is much more limited. Like I think there's a value in having ways to go and publish data that's extremely censorship resistant. And the Bitcoin blockchain is one of those ways. It also provides a good sort of authoritative record of, like, like you know, a, an example that I've personally done is for legal reasons, I, you know, quite a few years ago, I needed to go and make a well- you know, well-publicized broadcast. In this particular case was I was making a patent commitment so that my company would not, you know, would not patent stuff and use those patents against other companies. And I made that legal commitment. Well, the way I made that legal commitment was I published it on the Bitcoin blockchain. And for that particular use case, you know, censorship-resistant, highly public publication made sense. But that's a fairly narrow use case. I mean, it's not like you would go and put, you know, like Reddit on the Bitcoin blockchain, that just doesn't make sense. But for certain things, for very high value things, it can make sense. And I think Bitcoin devs, because there's so many ways to publish data, it's not really feasible for Bitcoin to stop it, like stop data publication. You know, we can make it a bit more expensive, but only a bit more expensive. We can't stop it. So it's better just be agnostic about it and let people do their thing. And and do you think there's like kind of, two different ways that people are looking at the purpose of Bitcoin. Like some people look at it as, hey, this is like a just money and the, and the, the Bitcoin itself, the coin, the token is the most important thing. But then there's other people who say, hey, this is actually a protocol for, for data, for block space, and the block space is potentially the valuable thing. How do, how do you think about that? And do you think that there's sort of maybe disagreement on that? Well, I think all you have to do is look at the market cap of Bitcoin versus all the other systems people build on top of it. And it's very clear that Bitcoin, the currency, is a more valuable thing. Now, could that change in the future? Eh, maybe, but you know, I don't have high hopes of that. You know, I mean, and, you know, I personally run a project, Open Timestamps, that builds on top of Bitcoin. It builds on top of Bitcoin for timestamping. Is Open Timestamps worth half a trillion dollars? Absolutely not. You know. It's valuable, but it's just not worth what Bitcoin itself is. And I think people building on top of Bitcoin just have to accept that 
they should do so in ways that are difficult to censor. You know, in ordinal inscriptions, it's not impossible. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not possible to always censor it, but ordinals can be made a lot more expensive than they are right now. So, you know, if I were building the ordinal inscriptions protocol, I would include other ways of encoding data to make it possible to get around this. And, you know, I'd also think about alternatives to publishing the data directly there. But, you know, when you talk about ordinals, just art project, I mean, this is a narrow use case, and I think it's fine the way it is. Very cool, Peter. Does anybody else have any questions to jump in on, on this topic? Yeah, I'll throw out there, I think that whether, so like, if you want, if there's an individual file that you want to be super available, super durable, right, you want, you want the advantages of like Bitcoin as a data, then using the inscription envelope makes, like if I've got one STL file, right, like using the inscription envelope makes sense. But the purpose there isn't necessarily to transfer the asset. Like I don't, I don't, in that use case, like Peter was kind of alluding to, I don't necessarily need this like serialization scheme to like sell the asset. Right. Cause like that's, that's sort of how that works. Right. Like we have this, we, we do this very computationally complex and difficult thing, which is create the serialization scheme. And then we use that serialization scheme to like pass these assets around as like, sort of meta tokens, if you will. But there's a lot of cases where you don't need that part. You just want the data availability and you want the durability. And so you can you can use the same method, like the same the same basic concept as an inscription, but in a separate meta protocol, right? So like instead of it being ORD, like an example, instead of it being ORD, it could be TOR. And you could you could lace the blockchain with like the the files that seed a torrent, and you could make a torrent permanently available, right? And you just teach torrent clients how to pick that data up from from the Bitcoin blockchain if other peers aren't available. I mean, to be clear, what you're doing there is not making the torrent itself permanently available. You're making the existence of the tor- of the torrent. Well, I mean, you're making the potential existence of the torrent permanently available. You know, I think there's a subtle distinction there. I mean, you know, it really comes down to like once people are no longer interested in that data, then that torrent data will probably go away, and you'll never be able to download it again. But you, you're, it's you're alluding a strong to way of notifying people. You're you're alluding to pruning it out, correct? I'm sorry, say that again. You're alluding to being pruned out of the Bitcoin blockchain. No, no, I'm saying so. My point is, if you go put, you know, a torrent link in Bitcoin, you're really saying. Hey, if you want to get this data, here is what it is. Here is, you know, what the hash um, rate is, but the data itself is somewhere else. No. So what I'm saying is that you could use the envelope that is being used for ORD to create a series of like indexed segments from the actual file itself and you label them. Okay, so if you've read... The- oh, okay, sorry, sorry. I misunderstood yeah. what you're trying to do there. Yes, yes, yeah, certainly yeah, if yeah. you put the data itself in the chain. But, of course, the challenge there is the cost is just so incredibly high that right. there's would- very few applications that can afford this. Well, it would be for data that somebody agrees is worth it, right? It would be something that the like some, some conglomerating set of entities or one particularly motivated entity says... I'm willing, I'm willing to pay to do this. I'm willing to pay to get this on the blockchain. And, and so they're sort of voting on their, their sense that this is important to put it there, which I can see like for certain media releases and for like SPL file libraries and stuff like that, like I can definitely see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. I, I think like just 
we have to be realistic that, especially as more as this idea catches on to more people, the fact is the vast majority of data that people would like public is just not going to be feasible because the cost is just so high. Awesome. Danny, you want to jump in? You know, you're, yeah, you're not going to put a movie on Bitcoin. Hey, Peter, I agree with you that inscriptions are great for a high value you know, data to be written onto the Bitcoin blockchain. But I think I have two comments about, about this. Well, one, the Ornos protocol is really cool, not just because it's easy to inscribe things on Bitcoin, but also because it actually uses the Bitcoin ledger system to let people own and trade those inscriptions that are written on. And I think that's quite powerful. And the second is that I think the definition of high value data is broader than art. I think people will, it's really any digital asset that now you can put onto Bitcoin and use a ledger system to, to basically own and trade those digital assets. And people will find more high value digital assets beyond art, the art use case. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing with the Ornos protocol as it develops further too. And also people will figure out, as you said too, how to encode basically these digital assets in a more efficient way. So it also doesn't bog down the Bitcoin network and can be more scalable. Well, I mean, are you familiar with the B protocol? Well, I, I think what's, what's cool with Ornos now is that, you know, it doesn't require any change in the Bitcoin network and, and, well, neither does RGB. Well, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been trying to base bill everybody on RGB, and they're all so stubborn. They want they want everything to be in inscriptions. They won't go look at RGB, but it's so dope. You need to you need to go look at RGB, guys. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I mean, the- I, I mean, I I I, I think this it, it really just comes down to a cost trade off, and it, you know, I I think for so many use cases, I mean, you know, a good example of this is like when you're talking about like stock trading, well. You know, the collective value of, say, you know, Microsoft's stock might be very high. The value of individual transactions can easily still be low enough that it would just not be feasible to do that asset recording directly on Bitcoin. And I think we're going to find that most use cases, they end up migrating to things more like the RGB, you know, slash proof marshal approach where essentially all the you know all the data is off chain and we're just using bitcoin for a very limited part of the consensus you know and that's it's just so much cheaper and it can also be a lot faster you know there will be some market for things like ordinals but i i just don't see that you know it's and it's it's a limitation thing too i mean we just can't put the stock market on bitcoin it's never going to happen yeah if you if you were exploring like what are other interesting ways I can do stuff on Bitcoin? Like how could I, like, again, this will come up with, with the, when we get around to talking to Domo, but if you're looking at like, how do I do a token protocol or how do I do smart contracts or these things? And you're just dead. If you're convinced in your mind that inscriptions is a place to do it, you're leaving a lot of stones on un- unturned. Over the next two years, people are going to get their minds blown <laughs> at how much is possible. And you can you can get in front of this right now. You just have to do a little bit of research. The things you want to be researching are things like RGB and also possibly tarot. Also, you know, I, th- I think like people, you know, people need to, you know, actually understand how lightning works. You know, Terra, of course, is meant to be, you know, like a lightning protocol extension. But I find a lot of people I discuss this with, they don't clearly understand lightning to begin with. So, you know, you got to get your basics. And, you know, if you're not if you're if you're talking about the stuff and think you're doing projects with this stuff, 
but you don't have a lightning wall that you use regularly, you know, you've got some homework to do. Yeah, I think definitely tarot is promising. Definitely RGB is promising. I can speak to why I'm maybe not like why I think some people don't use it. And I think that comes down to, at least for myself, the, the fact that lightning doesn't have global state and that the network, you know, you can't get full visibility into what people have. So, Peter, how do you, how do you think about that challenge? Because on Ethereum, for example, global state allows pro- different protocols to stack on top of each other. For example, you can lend NFTs, you can collateralize them, you can, you know, do a lot of different things. You can have another contract that allows you to do staking, which can give people a loyalty token to track how long they've held a certain asset. But these things will be much more difficult to do with Lightning because of the lack of global state and potentially with the the fact that it's a stored client side. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think the simple answer is you're asking to do things that are impossible on a decentralized network. And, you know, this is why Ethereum has so many of these scaling problems where Ethereum barely qualifies, you know, as a network that even works. And I would certainly not call call it particularly a decentralized network at this point because so few people actually use Ethereum with their own nodes. You know, that's that's just unfortunate facts. Now, can you do these things with a centralized database? Sure. And, you know, you can make a great auditable database too. But those are the trade-offs you have. And you just have to accept that if you want to have certain types of protocols that actually need global state, you're just not going to be able to do it on a, de- on a you know genuine decentralized network. Well, don't, don't you think that, you know, different levels of decentralization can warrant, you know, different use cases? So, for example... You know, you can, you know, put something on a, a different layer that maybe is less decentralized to complete a transaction, then withdraw it to the more decentralized, the base layer. I mean, you're welcome to go do those things. But, you know, I think what we found is that the risks of these more centralized systems are often much higher than people recognize. I mean, Ethereum as a whole, you know, it's interesting in the U.S. regulators just recently came out, I think it was a. Yeah, court case in New York where they just straight up argued that Bitcoin, you know, that Ethereum is a security, and it's a security because it's too centralized and also has moved to proof of stake. And you know, that's something where, depending on how the regulations go, it could be much more difficult to use Ethereum for a lot of purposes. You know, equally, I mean, if you want to move money around quickly in a decentralized way, there is no alternative better than Lightning right now. In the approach Lightning has, you're not going to do better than that, you know, with known with known computer science. Unless we come up with something fundamentally better, Lightning is the way to do it. Well, Peter, then what do you, what do you think about some of the centralization challenges or the difficulty in hosting a Lightning node? Some of the liveness issues, or you know, the fact that it's difficult to move large sums of money. Right? It's mainly good for micropayments, isn't that correct? I don't think that's really correct. You know, it's. Like at least I personally regularly do lightning payments, you know, of a thousand dollars and more. I mean, they, they work pretty well and there's enough liquidity out there to go do that. Now, you know, if your idea of micropayments is thousand dollars, yeah, I agree. You know, lightning is only good for micropayments then. But I think most people's idea of micropayments is a lot smaller than that. And, you know, the better argument is that lightning just inherently ties up a lot of liquidity. But there are ways to get around that, too. I mean, you can have lightning channels that aren't actually tied to on-chain Bitcoin. In fact, you can route through those lightning channels in a trustless way because, 
you know, if I'm sending money to you and in between at some point there's one of these not actual Bitcoin lightning channels, it's not my problem whether or not that trust relationship exists or not. All I care is that you got your money. So, you know, lightning has a lot of a lot of potential to go and make trade-offs around this that do not impact the end users. All right, Danny, go ahead and then post. Well, I think these systems, I mean, like Bitcoin is valuable because people use it, right? And people want to be involved in this network. Same with Ethereum. Ethereum has a, you know, tried a lot of people over the years too. And, you know, so like Lightning and Ordinals Protocol, right? These are also, you know, systems and these are open networks where right? anyone can participate. So, I mean, the more you can get people to use it, the more valuable and the more it will develop. And I think what's interesting about Orange Protocol is the way it's set up and launched, it got a lot of people interested. And now all these people are building on top of it. So that's that's why I think, you know, I'm quite excited by Orange Protocol. And I mean, it started out in a way that there's just one big collection, right? So everyone wanted to just inscribe and inscribe to be part of that collection. And, you know, that is kind of incentive to get it going. And now you have this, you know, growing community that is building on top of Orange Protocol. And, you know, I think there's, there's a you know good future there. The Lightning Protocol is great too, but you know it needs to attract more people. And I think actually all of these work together, like Ornos Protocol, Lightning, and Bitcoin. Right, they're all growing because of these new developments and new people entering. Yeah, well said. But, but the key difference, I should say, the, the key difference there though is that because Ordinals is on chain, there is a limit to how much it can grow. You know, it can grow in value indefinitely, but it cannot grow in terms of number of people that use it indefinitely. Whereas you know, Lightning, I mean, so a great example is like Nostra. You know, Nostra, because you can tip with Lightning, probably, you know, it would not be surprising if the total number of Lightning transactions done by everyone went up by a factor of 10. Yet because Lightning scales so well, that enormous increase was basically barely noticeable because certain, you know, certain routing nodes would go see it. Other ones would have nothing to do with it, and that's fine. You know, if I run a routing node, that routes between a few big, you know, exchanges and doesn't route to wallets that would go do or you know, Nostra tipping. I see none of those transactions at all, and that's fine. You know, that that's that's it makes it's one one reason why the system scales so well. Well, well so Peter, argue, so oh, go ahead, Danny. my argument for Ordinals is that the reason people like it is because it is all L1, it's all on chain, and it's not stable. Right, that's the point for these high value digital assets. We want them to be on-chain and not that scalable. People will find ways to make it a little more scalable, but still be on-chain. And, and it, this is kind of, like, these are complementary, right? Lightning and Oranos. I mean, the, the point of Oranos is that it's on-chain and not so scalable. But it can have some benefit of, you know, future kind of better encoding. But still, you know, all being on-chain is kind I, of... I, I mean, keep in, keep in mind that, like, economically what Ordinals is, is an NFT-type thing. And NFTs fundamentally cannot use Lightning because Lightning only works with fungible assets. You know, a Lightning channel has to have a quantity of an asset. It cannot work with a sing- you know, singular asset. Peter, I think you'll find there's all these like weird sorts of ways that people are leveraging Lightning. So I know there's several mints that have happened and like people are loving using like I'll be in some of these lightning wallets and like I think Udi's project, the Taproot Wizards, they've had like 3000 people or so download, you know, one of these lightning wallets and send a lightning transaction over the past 48 hours. And like, I just know for for myself, like that's but that's not the same thing as as making an ordinal move with a lightning trend. And and I totally I like that. That's 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 the thing. 
I well, 100% like, so, agree. So, they don't, like they social don't ties are one them. thing, but at the protocol level, they're just fundamentally incompatible. I mean, th- you know, th- th- this is like one reason why I came up with like my proof partial approaches because you had to have a way of scaling the movement of NFT type things in lightning fundamentally can't do it. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're obviously a hundred percent right. I just think it's like interesting that basically what I'm kind of seeing is, you know, people are downloading these wallets to do ordinals and they just happen to support lightning as well. And you basically, you're just like onboarding people to like a larger ecosystem around being built around Bitcoin and ordinals is just essentially one of these dApps and lightning can be like another layer and you know, a bunch of these things come together and you ultimately get a very useful set of tools that people are going to well, enjoy it's, using. It's co-advertising. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's a very fair way of talking about it. And I think hopefully there's just a mutually beneficial relationship there, you know, where the network grows stronger, the more, you know, layers and dApps you build on top post. Yeah. I guess some of it's been hit since I raised my hand. I, you know, I think to like the conversation that was just happening this, it's so easy, like, when we get into these deep technical conversations for the lines to get scaled. Like, P- Peter's right. Like, the the notion of, like, transferring these ordinal digital assets in Lightning is just sort of, it, it's unappropriate. There's, like, some weird hypothetical client extensions in Lightning that I could, like, sort of wonder about in my brain. But, like, it's, it's fundamentally pretty unapproachable, right? That doesn't mean we can't integrate it with Lightning. I did want to kind of touch back to Danny again, the, like when we, when we talk about the extensibility of the, like we're, we're saying like all these other ways to use the ORD protocol, the ordinals protocol, right? I really honestly believe that for the, for developers who are paying attention, if, if you, instead of thinking about it as how do I use the ordinals protocol, if you actually look under the hood at how the ordinal protocol works and you say, how do I use the envelope, right? Like, how do I make use of the envelope? You're going to find that there are many, many, many very interesting ways to use the envelope that doesn't require the serialization scheme of ordinals, which ultimately will make it much easier for clients to validate the state of the meta protocol that you're building, right? So, Right, ORD, ORD takes upon itself this very difficult validation of the serialization scheme. Anybody who's built the ORD database knows like it takes quite a lot to build it, right? You can, you can have other meta protocols that do not require the serialization scheme because in reality, most of the things people are trying to do with it don't actually need the serial numbers. They don't need that. So you could have additional client-side extensions that validate the state of a meta protocol that use the envelope, but don't necessarily use ORD. So I would just encourage people to think in those terms, like try, try and look at ORD under the hood and think about how does the envelope change to do what I want it to do. Now you're, you're going to run up in a situation where you need to onboard clients, right? Like you need to on the way that we onboarded ORD nodes, you'd need to onboard clients. But if it, if it takes, 10 minutes to build your database to to start building your database because you don't rely on the serialization scheme, then in my mind, it would be very, very easy. Even if all you did was go to ORD clients and say like, Hey, you're running, you're already running a full node. You're already running ORD run this other little client side extension to set up this other meta protocol. And I think that that space is going to expand really rapidly. And 
I guess I would disagree with Peter to a certain extent that I think that the, the general notion of the storage layer, the use of the envelope has many, many applications for it. Well said, Post. And so, Peter, could you talk a little bit about the differences between Taro and RGB and maybe some of the implications for ordinals? And then my other question is, you know, with, with Lightning specifically, you know, I think Strike is the most popular Lightning wallet. I personally use Moon because, you know, I found it easy to use. But neither of those are true. To be clear, Moon, Moon, yeah. Moon, is not, yeah, Moon is not a Lightning exactly, wallet. Exactly, right. Like, so, do you not say it's a Lightning exactly, wallet? Exactly, exactly. So why are those two wallets, which are some of the more popular wallets in Lightning, not really, like, not non-custodial and not a true Lightning wallet? And then could you explain the differences in, like, well, RGB and Taro? I mean, I, I, I can't... I, I, I don't know anything about you said strike wallet, right? Yeah, yeah, strike. Yeah, I don't know anything about strike, so I, I can't really comment there. But Moon is simply not a lightning wallet. It is an on-chain wallet that will make on-chain transactions to make someone, you know, to pay someone else to do lightning transactions. And frankly, I think, you know, like th- this is dragged on long enough that Moon are borderline scammers for continuing to say that they're doing a lightning wallet. It's just not a lightning wallet. And whenever transaction fees go up, suddenly you're, you're in a point where you're not paying lightning level transaction fees. You know, the purpose of a lightning wallet is that I can reliably pay low fees and get instant t- transactions. And Moon just doesn't have that property. And it's very annoying, too, because there are extremely easy to use lightning wallets. I mean, Phoenix is, I think, one of your best examples. It's works very reliably. It's genuinely non-custodial. You know, it opens genuine lightning channels in the background. And the economics of it actually makes sense. You know, Phoenix charges small fees to go and do what costs him reasonable amounts of money to accomplish. You pay for that service and that's that. I mean, I, I really can't see anything bad about Phoenix. And yet, you know, it's unfortunate as competes with borderline scammers like Moon who just aren't building the same thing. But claiming it is. And could you define what is a, a custodial lightning wallet versus a non-custodial lightning wallet? And what, what is Moon actually doing? It's like submarine swaps. What are those? Yeah, so a custodial lightning wallet is a lightning wallet where your funds are held by you know the custodian. Wallet of Satoshi is a great example. Wallet of Satoshi is a very nice wallet, but it works really well in hap- you know, because they're the ones holding your funds. They have complete control over the lightning channels that are running on their node. You know, your money is really just an entry in a database. And for small amounts of money, I think that trade-off is fine. You know, Moon is a, or sorry, not Moon, um, Wallet Satoshi is a perfectly good wallet to hold 20 bucks on because that approach allows it to be most efficient in terms of the amount, you know, the costs. But if you want a non-custodial lightning wallet where you're the one in control of the keys, you need something like Phoenix. And the way Phoenix works is your, your wallet on your phone actually has a lightning channel with Phoenix. So you are in control of the money you have. Now that does tie up more capital because the lightning channels themselves, you know, they have to have a certain amount of money tied up there. But it, you know, it means that if Phoenix goes bankrupt, you will get your money back. I mean, that's, you know, Phoenix is no way of stealing from you directly. They could steal from you by putting a backdoor on the software. So, you know, but in theory, it's open source software. But realistically, for the most part, they'd probably get away with that at least once. But 
certainly, you know, certainly it's not the risk on the level walled of Satoshi where they can just take the money and that's that. And Moon, the submarine swaps, well, that's just an on-chain payment. You know, Moon is an on-chain wallet that just has a fancy way of paying a third party to do a lightning transaction on your behalf. That really is all it is. Got it. And then what is the difference between Tarot and RGB? Well, so the idea behind Tarot is to go and add asset support to Lightning. But the thing about Tarot is it's, you know, it's very incomplete. All they've done is they put out a spec for how you could go and tie an asset to a Lightning channel. But I, I'm not even clear that that spec is really necessary. You know, the, 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 the way it kind of works is, you know, it, it does a fairly trivial thing of just saying, here's how you do the counting. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. And it's entirely missing the part where you move the asset around on some other layer to then set up these lightning channels. So, you know, tarot's incomplete. I mean, that's, that's just how it is. RGB, what they've done is they've actually made the specification for how do you move the asset around on-chain. And it works extremely well. It has a very nice model with uh, single-use seals. And in the future, they could scale up that model very well, too. And what they're missing is the Lightning Channel support. And it'll certainly be more work to the Lightning Channel support. But the important thing is that RGB is actually usable today. I mean, you can download Iris Wallet, as an example, and actually trade RGB tokens. And behind the scenes, it really does all the stuff it's supposed to do. You know, Tarot is just too incomplete to do that yet. You know, and we'll see how both protocols develop into the future, but that you know that is kind of your two options there. And are those different in the way that they work with non-fungible tokens versus fungible tokens? Like, is Terra more designed for a stablecoin type use case or intended to be used well, that way? Or I mean, like like I've said before, you fundamentally cannot do non-fungible tokens on Lightning. The you know Lightning. The econo- like the underlying idea of the protocol just cannot work with tokens where there is one unique thing. It, it's, there's just no way. Lightning does not make sense unless the thing that you're trading is fungible. So Tarot is purely for the fungible token side, and that's you know that's just how it is. RGB it can support both, and the way it can support both is it's really just an accounting layer for assets. Now whether or not those assets, the quantity of asset is one or the quantity is an infinitely divisible thing, you know, the, the math is basically the same. But as RGB develops its lightning channel support, that lightning channel support will only work for fungible assets. Got it. So RGB is a is storing client-side non-fungible tokens on Bitcoin L1. Is that a correct characterization? No. RGB stores client-side assets which can be non-fungible tokens, and they can also be fungible. It's either, both versions are supported. Got it. Thank you. And so I want to shift a little bit. Peter, I don't know how much more more time you have, but this has been a great conversation. I probably got to go in about another minute or two. All right, well then, yeah, I'll hold my other other questions for you. Let somebody else jump in if they have a final question for you, Peter. Okay, so Frank had left off with an amazing setup about an hour ago (laughs) and then hasn't turned. Frank, would you like yeah. to... Dude, my it, phone it, died, bro, and then I was just got caught up. But uh, I was actually just going to ask what you think about ordinals, if you have any ordinals, or do you think it's stupid? Or, But I feel like you must have gotten asked that at this point in the last 30 minutes. So now I feel like an absolute fucking bozo. 
Well, you know, I did go and mint a few ordinals just to try it out with the ordinals bot. But uh, I minted them to the open time, like my Alice open timestamps calendar donation address. So the actual ordinal, you know, so the actual ordinals, Satoshis themselves, are probably either sitting in the wallet or already burned to fees. And, you know, in terms of collectibles, like I'm, I'm just not the sort of person who goes around collecting, dig- you know, things in general, let alone digital assets. So that personally doesn't have much interest to me. But, uh, you know, well, the underlying protocols I've looked at. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I mean, damn, dude, if a Bitcoin core dev is fucking up on Ordinal's UX, this is tough, guys. Gotta work on it. Yeah, I was going to say maybe. Well, I mean, I mean, to be clear, I mean, I, 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 clear. I, I, I intentionally went and, you know, minted those Ordinal's to that donation address because I didn't care. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, I like, uploaded open timestamps logo to you know ordinalsbot.com twice to play with it and that's really it i mean it's you know i i knew what it would go do and i didn't really care that it would go throw it off into the ether not my problem yeah zk go for it and then we will move on to our next segment which with domo and then nullish Yo, what's up, Leonidas? How's it going, guys? Yeah, I just had a quick question for Peter. As like a Bitcoin core dev, I kind of find it interesting you'd use Ordinals bot and not like a full node. Full node, because I think something special about Ordinals is that all these NFT DGENs, literally hundreds of them have been asking me how to set up full nodes. And I think like once you kind of, I know, I know you kind of know more about that than me, but why wouldn't you use the full node to inscribe? Easy, because doing that was a lot of work and I didn't really care enough to actually go through all that trouble. You know, I mean, I, I the only Fair reason enough. I did it was just to go and see what the, you know, see what the software that many other people would use would look like. I, you know, I, I didn't care to go keep it or any of that. I was just in- curious about how well the process would work. Now, you know, if I had infinite time and motivation, I certainly would have downloaded the software and compiled it and run it and so on. But, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And I was pretty confident I knew how it worked by, you know, reading the spec and like, skimming through the source code i didn't need to actually go and sit there and run it so that, that was enough for me yeah no that's fair enough i just think one of the most exciting aspects about ordinals is people incentivized to you know secure bitcoin and also just the excitement around nft gens like just racing well, instead of I, nodes I, to inscribe I, I mean what what i will say is i think it's very promising that this particular subculture if you will it has developed in such a way that people are doing it through running nodes you know and i think that really says something about how different the bitcoin subculture is from say the ethereum one where you know ethereum nft stuff has tended to be very centralized in how people actually use it with lots of single points of failure and third party trust and so on whereas you know the same basic thing it develops on bitcoin yet suddenly the people have full custody of all their stuff you know, it's a it's a huge difference in culture. So it's quite nice seeing that, even if I personally didn't bother trying it myself. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Because something I do is I get people to start downloading the Bitcoin core, and then I tell them about Ordinal's bot so they can inscribe while they're waiting. But yeah, try to get as much nodes as possible with uh, NFT GS. Yeah. yeah. Now just get more of them to enable full RBF on those nodes. That'd be helpful. <laughs> enable what? How do you do that? Enable get get more of them. Enable full RBF. Add mempool full RBF equals one to your Bitcoin.conf file. <laughs> I gotta run, but uh, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for coming, Peter. Welcome back anytime, and thanks for sharing so much of your knowledge here. We really appreciate it.